Uh, well, if you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6? And um, we're going to spend the next few moments uh, reading and then talking about um, 1 Corinthians 6. And um, I just kind of want to say this before we get in the passage that uh, we're going to be talking about sex this morning. And um, probably uh, that, I, I don't know how you respond to that, but um, I, I said last week that this is going to be kind of a PG uh, look at sex. And um, parental guidance is suggested. Um, this will not be crude, but it will be honest. I think the, probably the most graphic portion of the next 30 minutes or so will be actually reading the text. Um, but, you know, I, I'm just putting that, that out there because I know there are kids here. And if that's a conversation that you're not ready to have yet, um, I understand. Uh, having said that, my kids are in the service, so it's just not something that I'm uh, embarrassed about talking about in front of my own children. So with all of that disclaimer, have you ever heard a disclaimer like that uh, before a sermon? Uh, would you stand with me, and we're going to read um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're following in one of the Blue Bibles, you can find that on page 955. And um, we're going to read starting in verse 11. Uh, Paul has been talking about uh, sexual immorality, and um, and, uh, and he addresses us um, as people who are sexually broken people. And he says this, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved to anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray together. God, I uh, confess that I, uh, I feel a little bit reluctant <coughs> heading into this. Um, God, we need um, your help. Uh, we need your help to um, understand uh, what you have to say about sex and our bodies uh, in a way that doesn't cause shame, um, but can bring um, uh, the truth into the light. God, we need you. We long for you. So would you be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Okay, so this morning we're beginning a, a new series called What is Love? 
And um, last Sunday, we talked about the gospel. The gospel is the core, essential message of Christianity. It's the, it's the foundation of our church. And um, what I want to do in this short series today and in the next two weeks is, is unpack the implications of the gospel for our relationships. Uh, my conviction is this, that if our lives are ever going to make sense to us, and if we're ever going to do more than just merely survive, but we're going to flourish and thrive in life, that we have to begin by understanding who God is and what he has done for us. And that's what we call the gospel, the, the central message of Christianity. But we also have to go beyond that, and we have to see how the gospel works itself out into all areas of our lives. And so uh, in, these, in this short three-week series, we're going to look at the way that the gospel affects our most intimate relationships. Uh, we're going to be talking about sex and marriage and singleness. And so today we're going to begin by talking about sex. And um, sex is everywhere. <laughs> Uh, we know that sex sells, and it seems like as a culture, mostly what we want to do is sell things, and so uh, we use sexes everywhere, right? We cannot drive down the road without seeing uh, sex used to sell anything from like chicken wings to air conditioners, right? Billboards everywhere. You cannot go into the mall. I have no idea how this is possible, but every mall seems to be able to support, you know, five, eight lingerie stores. Like, how can there be that much? Um, you understand the point. Uh, we can't turn on the TV or the computer without kind of being bombarded with sexually provocative images. Uh, we can't even open the Bible without being confronted with sex. Um, there's an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, that is all about sex. And of course, there's all kinds of talk about sex woven all the way through the rest of the Bible, too. It seems like just about the only place we can go to avoid hearing about sex is church. Um, we almost never talk about sex in church. Um, and I believe that that needs to change. Several years ago, um, when I was the first church I was a pastor at, I, I had a conversation. I don't even know how this conversation came up, but I was talking to our church administrator one day, and for some reason we were talking about the Song of Solomon. It's a book in the Bible. It's all about the, the glory of sex. And, um, and, uh, and I was saying, someday I want to preach this, the Song of Solomon. And she said, you need to do that with your wife. Kind of like, not in public. And I remember saying to her, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but like, where are we going to learn about sex? <laughs> because the reality is that it's, it's, it's kind of everywhere in our culture, and yet we never talk about it. Um, or we, we talk about it in ways that are like, you know, kind of crude college humor. We talk about it in ways that um, tend to induce shame. And it's a little bit funny, isn't it? Because we think of ourselves as sort of enlightened. Like in the last 50 years, we've, um, as a culture, finally discovered the freedom to, like, sexual freedom. But we don't, we still don't talk about it. Um, I think that it's absolutely true that in the last 50 years, attitudes towards sex have changed, and the way that we talk about sex has changed, but I think that um, the very first thing that the Bible would tell us about sex is that we should, we should be wary of the way that our culture talks about sex, or the, at least the common sense views of sex that our culture presents to us. Um, and here's why, because in 1 Corinthians 2, 
I don't know if you picked up on this as we read it, but there's two places where, where um, the Apostle Paul is, is making, he's quoting something. And the scholars tell us that what we think he's, he's doing is he's quoting a kind of a common saying about sex in Corinth in the first century. Um, he says, all things are lawful for me. And then he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, what is he saying? Uh, well, the first quote is saying, all things are, are lawful for me is saying, hey, back off. <laughs> Like, I'm a free person. I have the right to do whatever I want with my body. And the second thing, the second quote is, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. What, what that's saying is sex is just an appetite. You know, if you're hungry, you make a sandwich. If you're thirsty, you get a drink of water. If you want to have sex, you have sex. It's just an appetite. Um, and so I think we need to be aware of the, what our culture would present to us as sort of common sense views of sex, because as much as we want to think, you know, we're so much more enlightened than people 2,000 years ago, like their common sense views of sex are exactly the same as ours. Um, and yet they have not served us well. They have not served us well. Because while we may think of ourselves as sort of sexually free, uh, empirical data presents a different picture. Um, we need to talk about sex because for 50 years, basically the only thing as a culture we've been able to say is that you should never restrict anybody's sexual practice or preferences. But consider some of these realities. Um, a, uh, an article in the New York Times about two years ago said that most males learn about sex from the internet. That is the source of our, uh, of our sexual wisdom. Uh, the global sex trafficking industry is a $32 billion a year industry. <clears throat> On college campuses, we, we know we have the hookup culture of casual sex. Uh, and during the same time period, rates of suicide and depression have also increased dramatically for college students. In the last couple of years, um, we have witnessed this kind of rash of just out of scandals of abuse, both inside the church and outside the church, where um, uh, sex has been used to hurt and victimize. And there's actually um, uh, evidence, more, more stories that are coming out that are saying um, you know, those who have been victimized uh, have tended to go on to victimize other people. And I think we're just uh, scratching the tip of the iceberg, mixing metaphors there um, on that. Uh, I read this quote in um, the Atlantic Monthly that kind of sums up what I'm saying here. The sexual revolution promised us more sex and more pleasure. It has actually delivered to us a generation of men who think of women as objects to be used and abused for their sexual pleasure. It has not given us men who know what virtue and honor are. It doesn't teach men to pursue their joy in self-sacrificially loving and being sexually faithful to women. It teaches young men to use women for sex and then discard them when they become unwilling or uninteresting. Um, another study actually said that uh, the frequency of sex, like people have less sex now than they did 50 years ago. <clears throat> and um, pretty much the only people, studies indicate, that would say that they are satisfied with their sex life are those who are happily married. Okay, so let me be clear that that doesn't actually prove anything. 
but it does. It, it should cause us to uh, raise an eyebrow at we're sexually free, and yet we have all of these problems in our culture with regard to sex. Um, it should cause us to wonder about where we're getting our sexual wisdom from. And so um, we need to talk about sex. We're surrounded by it. Um, it's everywhere, and yet we don't uh, we don't talk about it. Uh, I, I kept having this image in my head this week as I was thinking about this. Of uh, I don't know if you read the book or saw the movie Unbroken about these uh, airmen in World War II that were shot down over the Pacific Ocean and they spend 40-something days drifting in a life uh, raft. And, and kind of the cruel irony of, of their experience is that they are surrounded by water and yet they are dying of thirst. And I think that that's maybe a picture of where we are as a culture when it comes to sex. We are surrounded by it. And yet what we need is not uh, rules about right and wrong. What we need is somebody to offer us a glass of water to satisfy our thirst. And so I hope that's uh, what we're going to see this morning. Let me just say two things very quickly, just to be clear, and then we're going to dive in with what this passage says. The first is this, uh, sex is good. Uh, like... Uh, sex is God's idea, and he created it for a reason, and he created it to be pleasurable, and God created sex because he loves you. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to say is that I feel like I have to say this. Sexual sin is still a sin. I know that nobody really thinks that today. Um, the Bible's sexual ethic is very clear. Sex is to be enjoyed in marriage, and God forbids sexual sin because he loves you. Not because he's a killjoy, because he loves you. So we have to talk about sex because we almost never talk about it, and it's everywhere, and it usually induces shame and guilt. So let's talk about sex. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6 uh, is all about bodies and sex and how we use uh, sex in our bodies. And Paul, three times in these nine verses I read, says, Do you not know... And it's like he's communicating what he, what, he wants to, uh, what he wants to communicate are these simple foundational truths about the reality of our bodies and sex. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. And the first is this. Um, sex is powerful. Sex is powerful. Uh, verse 16 and following, Paul says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Then listen to this. Every other sin a person commits is outside of his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What is he saying? I think, I think what the Bible is saying here is that sex is never simply about the physical interaction. It's always about more. It's always about much more than what is going on physically between two people. It's not just about mechanics. Uh, it's, about, uh, it's about the joining of two people in more than just a physical way. Uh, he said that sex is powerful. And I think in a sense, that is very obvious, isn't it? Um, it's obvious, I mean, nature shows us that sex is powerful simply by the fact that that's the way that babies are made. Uh, it's really the only way that a human being can create something new. Uh, and other things, I can take one thing and make it into something else. But sex is the only way that human beings can come together and actually create new life. And there's something profound that nature shows us there. 
Um, that there, there, there's something powerful about sex. Uh, we can also see that sex is powerful just because it's different. It's different than everything, anything else. Sex, uh, let me just be very clear, that sexual sin is not the only sin. I know that often the church, uh, I, I don't even know if that's true. People, maybe the church has communicated, maybe people have picked up the idea unintendedly that sex is like the only sin. Sex is not the only sin. Sex is not the worst sin, but it is different than other sin. Um, a, a guy I know named Ricky Jones is a pastor in Oklahoma. Um, I heard him, him he, he, he put this really well. He said, you know, if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and say to yourself, I just really want to steal something today. I just can't wait to steal something. We would say, you have a problem. You need to get help. <laughs> And uh, if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and say, I just can't wait to kill somebody. I can't believe I'm 20 years old and I've never killed somebody yet. Like, I just want to kill people. We would say, you are a psychopath and we need to get you help, right? But if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'm 20 years old and I've never had sex and I want to, then we would say that you are normal. Sex is different than every other thing. It's different than every other sin. Um, Sex is powerful. It's just different. I mean, it's, we see that it's powerful both in positive and negative ways. Um, we can see, like, negatively, sex is powerful because one bad sexual experience, it doesn't have to, but it really can affect the rest of your life. Um, as I, when I was a college pastor, I had a conversation with a, uh, with a college student once who... Um, over the course of time, just, uh, you know, as she shared more of her story, uh, discovered that she just had a deep, deep distrust of men in general. Um, she, she was almost physically incapable of, of uh, being in the presence of, of a man. And uh, come to find out that, that at a young age she had been abused by a, a, family, a family friend. Uh, and that, that really just cast a shadow over everything in her life in terms of where, where are you going to live? What are you going to do for a career? Uh, one bad experience can make an enormous difference. Um, sex is powerful. I've had pastoral conversations with people who, who cannot give themselves to their spouse because of something that has happened to them. And though they cannot give themselves to their spouse, they give themselves away to other, you know, to people that they aren't married to. And it and, it, and it, it hurts, it ruins families, it ruins marriages. Um, Dr. Phil, I didn't actually watch this, I don't watch Dr. <laughs> Phil. <laughs> Somebody told me this happened. Sure. <laughs> I'm just glad to hear that you're all still with me. It's been very quiet. Dr. Phil, there was an episode of Dr. Phil where there was this mom and she was trying to talk to her. She was so frustrated with her teenage girl, teenage daughter, and, and just trying to get her to stop sleeping around. And, and the teenage daughter just refused. And Dr. Phil sent them to separate rooms with a pad of sticky notes and said, I want you to both write down the names of everyone that you've had sex with and then put it on your body. And so they did that and they came out of the rooms at the same time and they just looked at each other and they just both began to weep. They just both began to weep. Why? Because sex is powerful. And when Paul says that every other sin we commit against somebody else, but 
the one who commits sexual sin commits it against his own body. What he's saying is that sexual sin leaves scars in ways that even if we don't want to acknowledge it, our body keeps the score. Sex is powerful. Sex is powerful. It has the power to do real harm. But let me be very clear. It also has the power to do real good, too. Um, The Bible talks about sex as a covenant renewal ceremony between a husband and a wife. Um, It's an act that by doing it, no pun intended, (laughs) it actually reinforces and strengthens the thing that is being signified. Let me me say that better. Um, When sex is used in the context of love and commitment, it actually strengthens that commitment and deepens that love. And it does that in a way that mere words cannot do. Um, Saying I love you to your spouse is something that you should do, right? And yet sex deepens our love for one another in a way that just saying I love you cannot do. In a way that going out for a nice dinner uh, cannot do because sex is powerful. I I promised my my wife that I was not going to... um, be too personal. <laughs> she gave me permission to say this. Um, we know how to fight, okay? Um, like we, we we are stubborn, and like man, we we are getting better. But like we know how to have knock down, you know, drag out fights where we are not gonna let it go. And there there was a there was a fight um, several months back. In which you know we're in, we're in the middle of this fight, and I'm and I'm like, it occurred to me that I had no idea what we were fighting about, but I was still like in it, and I just we kind of looked at each other and said, "How long has it been since we've had sex?" And you know, I don't know exactly what the number is, but I would just say if the number is more than three to five days, maybe you should just stop the argument and. Why? Okay? Not talking about me anymore. Because life is hard. <laughs> and, and, and let me, you're, this may work out in your marriage in different ways, okay? Some of you probably need to fight. We need to learn how to fight less. And we are learning how to fight less. But here's the thing that happens. In the day-to-day realities of we cannot keep our house clean and our kids bed and, you know, homework done and work is hard and all of this stuff. And it's so easy to begin to turn on each other and be like, and we have to stop and remind ourselves, like, we are on the same team. And Ashley and I say that to each other all the time. You're on, I'm on your team. And yet sex is powerful and it communicates that in a deeper way than sensible words will. That the act of sex actually deepens our love and commitment for one another. Uh, and it puts us back on the same team. Because sex is powerful. And because sex is powerful, that is the reason why it has to be used in the proper context. Okay, It's because it's so powerful. Uh, about a year and a half ago when we bought our house here in Ladera, um, we had to do something that we didn't have to do when we bought our previous house somewhere else. And uh, what we had to do is we had to sign all of these papers that acknowledged that we live within like, I don't know, 12 miles or whatever the number is of San Onofre nuclear power plant. 
why? Because a power plant, a nuclear power plant, is a powerful, powerful thing. It has the uh, the power to do great good, right? It has the power to, to provide electricity for a large portion of Southern California. But it also, even though they shut it off, it still has the power to do great devastation, too. And so they're saying if you're going to buy a house within, I think, 50 miles of San Onofre Power Plant, you have to sign these documents that say, I acknowledge that I live in like this, I don't know what they call it, nuclear zone or something like that. Um, and the same thing is true of sex. Um, sex is powerful, and it has the power to do great good, but it has the power to do great harm, and so it has to be used in the proper context. Please notice, um, and I'm going to talk actually next week and the week after about, I'm going to kind of unpack what does that mean, what does that look like in marriage and singleness. But please notice that in this passage, Paul is not just laying, laying down rules of right and wrong and saying this is permissible and this is not uh, this isn't uh, kind of naked morality, no pun intended. Um, I, I think there is a place for that, of just saying that there are, there are clear, clear lines that the Bible would lay out of right and wrong. But the reason and the argument that Paul's making in this passage is this is a really powerful thing, and so it has to be confined to the proper context. Um, God loves you, and because God loves you, he gives you sex. And because he loves you, he forbids sexual immorality. And it's the knowledge that he loves you. The knowledge that he loves you is the only thing that will actually enable you to be satisfied with sex in its proper context. Because you won't make too much of it, you won't make too little of it. And the knowledge that he loves you is the only thing that will allow you to flee from sexual sin. And that brings us to the second thing that Paul says in this passage. Uh, the second thing he says is that sex is a picture of the gospel. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Uh, when Paul says that, uh, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? I bet that none of us really understand what he is saying there because... The word member for us, we think about like we've been bombarded with the stuff from our school the last three weeks. Like, become a member of the PTA. Um, or like, I don't know, we think about members like, are you, I'm a member of this bowling league. I don't know if anybody's a member of a bowling league. But, you know, the, the idea that like I'm a member of a thing that I join, that I choose to join, I pay my dues, but I don't feel like it anymore, I leave. Uh, that's the way we use membership. The way the Bible uses the word membership, what the word member meant is a physical part of a body, like a limb or an organ. And so Paul is saying, um, what Paul is saying here is this, your bodies matter because your physical bodies are the very body parts of Jesus. And what he's getting at is, is profound because um, think about the way that sex works. I mean, if you can... Um, Sex is an act where two are becoming one. Where physically, you cannot draw a sharp line between where, where one person ends and the other person begins. And that is a picture of who God actually is. Um, that's a picture of God himself. It's a picture of the Trinity. Um, I, I said this at the beginning, but I, I, I truly believe this. If you're ever going to make sense of your life, and understand the complexities of your life, you've got to start by understanding who God is. 
And one of the things that the Bible um, just kind of paints this broad tapestry uh, picture uh, is of who God is. And uh, what the Bible lays out and what Christians believe is that uh, God is a trinity. Um, the, the, the one true God exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, um, and what, the, what the Bible says is that there, there is no, uh, that God has existed as a community of persons for all of eternity. And so there is no sharp line where the Father ends and the Son begins, or where the Son ends and the, and the Spirit begins. Uh, but that God has been face-to-face with himself. The persons of God have been face-to-face with himself for all of eternity, um, indwelling each other. Uh, theologians use the term perichoresis. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but I went to seminary for three years, so every once in a while i got to drop something like that in. <laughs> perichoresis is this Greek word um, uh, that, that um, in the kind of first, second, third century, um, the church uh, latched onto to explain the way that the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit interrelate with one another. Alistair McGrath, who is a um, theologian at Oxford, so you know he's right, he, uh, he, he, he explains perichoresis like this, or the way that God relates to himself. He says, an image often used to express this idea is that of a community of being, okay? That God is not just a single person, but God is a community of being. And then he says this, in which each person, while maintaining its distinctive identity, penetrates the others and is penetrated by them. So to be clear, this does not mean that God, um, that the persons of God are like having sex, okay? I just want to be utterly clear about that. But what it's saying is that when God chose a picture to express who he is, he chose sex. And so sex is a picture of who God is. And the reason that we desire sex is because we want to be known in the way that God knows himself. And the, the reason, part of the reason that we long for sex and intimacy is because we want to be intimate with another being in the way that God is intimate himself. And we want to be indwelt in the way that God has always indwelt himself. Sex is a picture of the way that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relate to one another. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that that is the way that life is produced because the Bible tells us, the Bible leads us to believe that um, God didn't create the world because he was bored and he wanted somebody to love. God has always been filled with love. God has always been indwelling. The persons of the, Holy, uh, the Trinity have always been indwelling and dwelling in and around and amongst each other. And so why did God create the world and human beings? He created the, the, the world and he created everything that exists as an outpouring of his love. And so when God creates a picture of who he is, he creates sex. And it makes sense then that sex is the way that new life is brought into the world. That's an outpouring of that love. Isn't that beautiful? Sex is a picture of who God is. But sex is also a picture of, of the way that Jesus relates to his church. Um, we see that here when Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? You are, you are actually brought into Christ. The, the most common way that the New Testament refers to Christians is saying that, that a Christian is somebody who is in Christ. Um, 
we, we, we probably gloss over that and miss the uh, sort of allusion to the sexual reality there. Again, not to say that Jesus is having sex with his church. That would be a strange thing to say. But it's this idea of being brought into the body of Christ, the body of Christ. Um, another way we see this in, in, um, in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul has been talking about husbands and wives and marriage. Uh, and he talks about um, a husband um, loving a w- his wife by giving himself up for her and a wife submitting to her husband. Uh, and, and then he, he kind of lays all this out. And then Paul says, I'm telling you a profound mystery, but what I'm saying is that it refers to Christ in the church. And he's saying that ultimate reality is the way that Jesus intends to love his people um, as a husband loves his bride. Sex is um, a picture of God, but it's a picture of the way that Jesus relates to us. It's a, way that he lo- it's a picture of the way that he loves us. <clears throat> so let me just ask, like, so what? What are you going to do with that? Well, I think there's a couple of different ways you could go with that. I mean, what Paul says here is if you are brought into the body of Christ, then when you commit sexual sin, you're bringing Jesus into the bedroom with you. We can't do that. But I think another way to, to, to kind of apply this as the so what question would be to say, okay, so if, if sex is just a picture of the real thing, then let's not get so obsessed with the picture because we have the real thing. Uh, I remember um, hearing a story about an American tourist going to Westminster Abbey and uh, Westminster Abbey is a church in London. And, um, you know, all over the UK and Europe, there are these churches that are kind of like museums. You have to pay to go into them, which I hate, but it, it just seems wrong. But the, this American tourist goes in, he's looking at everything in Westminster Abbey, and there's, you know, kings are buried there, and famous authors are buried there. I think maybe Ch- like Chaucer. Is Chaucer buried? I don't know. She's not looking at me, so not Chaucer, my wife. Uh, uh, the point is, American tourist goes in, and, uh, and the priest comes over and says, are you an American? And he says, how did you know? And, and the priest says, because the Americans always read the signs and don't look at the thing. Uh, and it's funny, if you think about the way that we go, like we look at museums, like we read the plaque, and we kind of glance and we move on to the next thing. Uh, and this is another sermon, but like our cell phones are making that much worse, right? You go to a baseball game and everybody's taking pictures. Like, it's right there. Watch the game. You can get pictures of it on your phone later, okay? It doesn't make sense to obsess over the picture when you have the real thing that is being offered to you. We have the real thing, so we don't have to obsess over the picture. God loves you. He has given himself for you. So let's not get so, sex is a good thing, I've said that. But we don't have to get so obsessed over it. C.S. Lewis said this, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. God loves you. He has given himself for you. He wants to, he is passionate about you. He wants to be in you. He wants you to be in him. He wants you to be known. He wants to know you. Let me finish with just a a, a final word about um, sexual brokenness. Paul started this section talking about 
people who are engaged in sexual sin. And then he says, And such were some of you that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I hope this has been clear um, in the way that I've spoken about this already. But there is only one sort of person in the world that is the sexually broken person. That describes me, that describes you. Um, and the church has done such damage in a way that we've talked about kind of the problem of sexual immorality, immorality like it's out there. And then, of course, when a scandal erupts and um, charges of hypocrisy are thrown at the church, like we deserve it, um, it's true. But I think that the real tragedy is that the way that we've talked about sex uh, has been more about shaming than it, than it has been about healing. Because this is all of us. This is all of us to one degree or another. And the first thing that Paul wants us to hear is that the gospel brings healing to those who are sexually broken. Um, some of us have done things that we're ashamed of, and uh, maybe we feel guilty, maybe we feel fine, except when you show up at church and you didn't know it was gonna be the sex sermon and you're gonna run. Um, Or maybe we feel, maybe we just think that's just who I am, you know. Um, I heard about a, 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 a teenager who was going in to um, talk to his pastor and sort of confessing this sin, and he said, you know, I guess that's just who I am. You know, I guess I'm just one of those perverts. I guess I'm just one of those dirty people. I says, no, you have been washed. You've been washed, you're not dirty. Some of us have, um, have done things we're ashamed of. Some of us have been victims when somebody else has done something to us. And, um, and, and that has hurt us. And um, there's all kinds of ways in which we may have responded to that. One way that we may have responded to that is, is the feeling that nobody else would ever want me. It's not true. It is not true. Look at what Paul is saying, saying that the Trinity... The God who created the universe is moving his power. He's using his power to clean you, to cleanse you, to heal you, to justify you, to sanctify you. He wants you. He's giving you himself. Jesus wants you. He doesn't want you to run and hide from him. He wants you. Um, I'll finish with this. Matt Chandler is a pastor in Texas. And... Um, he, he's told this story. He's pro this is probably this is really the only thing I know about Matt Chandler. But he um, he, he told this story that uh, years and years ago, he and I think his wife were um, kind of had befriended this woman in their neighborhood, and they were they were getting to know her, and she was just a, a very broken person. She'd been a very promiscuous woman, um, and uh, you know just very just struggling, you know. And they befriended this woman and. Just trying to uh, not not so much tell her, but just demonstrate the love of Christ for her. And uh, one Sunday, she finally agreed to come to church with um, with with their family. And um, you know, I, as often happens, she shows up at church, and it's there's a guest speaker, and he's talking about sex. And Matt Chandler said it was horrible. Um, it, it was it was utterly horrible. It was filled with with shame, and it, it, the whole you know it's kind of one of these. 
kind of, I don't know if you grew up in a youth group environment, these things that you would get hit with every once in a while, it's kind of like the only thing you need to know about sex is that you should never do it. Um, and, and the speaker, he started off um, this, this talk with a, he, he called Rose, and he and he did he kind of passed it around. He passed it into the into the crowd and said, "I want you to you know pass the, this rose around and touch it." And and it was passed around the room, and hundreds of people they didn't really know why people uh, you know hundreds of people touched it, and it was just kind of flopping all over. And it um, and at the end of the talk, he uh, the speaker got the rose back and he held it up, and it just looks you know kind of painted. And he says, "This is if you're a sexually immoral person, this is what you are." And who, who would ever want to, who would ever want you after that many people have touched you? And Matt Chandler said, he just wanted to stand up with kind of righteous indignation and say, Jesus, Jesus wants the rose. And that's what I want you to know. Jesus wants you. No matter your past, no matter your present, Jesus wants you. He loves you. He created sex because it is good and he loves you and he forbids sexual sin because he loves you. Let's pray together. Paul says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God, would you impress that truth upon us. Would you um, help us to feel the weight of the beauty of the reality that Jesus has purchased us with his body. And because of that, uh, he satisfies us. He, he satisfies our desire for intimacy. He satisfies our desire uh, for pleasure. And he wants good things for us. God, we are, um, we are people in need of your help and your healing. And we pray that you would uh, be at work in us. I pray in Jesus' name.